Oh, good morning. Is this, oh, it sounds like it's working. That's good. I mean, I can project anyway. I've got a pretty big voice, but uh, it's working, so that's good. Um, so I have a reputation among family and friends for being just a little bit competitive. Just a little bit. <laughs> when it comes to board games. I like to win, which is a shame because I very rarely do. So you'd think with how often I like to, well, how often I don't win, that I would have learned to just enjoy playing the game. No. And what I find even more difficult is when I'm tantalizingly close to winning and then absolutely fail to do so. So I recently joined in a game of Harry Potter Cluedo. Now for those of you who don't know, um, it's very similar to the original, except there are different characters, different weapons, different locations. There's a whole bunch of other cards and actions that can absolutely make or break your game. But the principle remains the same. You've got to move around the board, collecting clues, um, and be the first to reveal who's done it. So towards the end of the game, I was absolutely convinced that I was going to win. I was so sure that I'd identified the correct uh, weapon, the location, and the person. And all I had to do was make my way to the middle of the board, uh, reveal my guesses, and be crowned the champion. I was so excited. I rolled the dice, and I got the exact number I needed to get to where I needed to go. I opened the mystery envelope into which the answers had been placed, but I was thwarted. It turned out that someone had made a mistake in the setting up of the game, not looking at anyone in particular. Um, <laughs> uh, and the clues weren't right. Nobody could win. We'd spent the whole game. <laughs> like, I know, right? I'm not bitter. And I didn't cry when I went home, but I was close. We'd spent the whole game collecting the clues and trying to connect the dots, but we were never going to get it right. Any guesses we made, any beliefs we had about the who, the what, and the where, they were always going to be wrong. Wouldn't it be hard if, when we asked the question of who Jesus is, all the clues were mixed up? If we couldn't connect the dots, because, uh, or we came to a conclusion that was incorrect, simply because we didn't get the information that we needed. John's Gospel sets out to make sure that we can't ever mistake who Jesus is. In fact, the end of the gospel sets out its purpose very clearly. John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded here. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's whole purpose in writing this gospel is to prove that Jesus is the Son of God so that we might believe in him and receive the gift of eternal life. John wants us to have all of the evidence. He wants us to connect the dots and he wants us to come to a conclusion that will lead to far more than a momentary win. He wants us to have life in Jesus' name. In John's gospel and in today's passage, John takes us on a journey from doubt to certainty, from unbelief to faith, and from death to eternal life. And I think he does this by helping us to do three things. John helps us to understand who Jesus said he was by listening to what he says. He helps us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God by looking at what he did 
And he invites us to receive the gift of eternal life and know that the gift is ours no matter what. Our passage today begins in Jerusalem. Some Jewish leaders are demanding that Jesus answer the question of whether he really is the Messiah. Jesus confirms his divinity clearly, but they are so angered by his answer that they try to stone him to death. Jesus tries to explain to them that he knows his words won't convince them, so they should look at the works he has done as proof. But they still can't connect the dots and see that he is, as he says he is, the Son of God. And Jesus has to escape from Jerusalem. So John 10, 22 to 42. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Just going to pray before we move on. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we just pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see you more clearly, that you would open our ears to hear the words that you want to speak to us, and that you would open our hearts that we might receive fresh faith today about the gift of eternal life that you have given us. Amen. So let's start with how John helps us to understand who Jesus said he was by listening to what he says. Now, understanding is so important. I teach a class of six-year-olds, and last week we were doing a lesson on how to stay safe indoors and outdoors. So we were coming up with things like, we don't use sharp knives, we don't touch the stove, we don't play in the road. 
So I asked them to have a little think about other ways that we could stay safe indoors, uh, to, to chat to each other and then to feed back to the class. So one little boy, who we'll call Bob, said, you should watch out for bear traps. I can't laugh, you see, I've got to sit there with a straight face. So I, uh, of course, I was, it was, but it was important to me that he understood what I'd actually asked him. So I said, Bob, do you have any bear traps in your house? I mean, there are, you know, we've heard of stranger things. <laughs> and he said, oh, I thought we were talking about staying safe outside. He thought there were bear traps outside. I mean, uh, I still couldn't quite... Yeah, there are no words, but I still had to try and make sure that he understood what I'd actually been asking him. Uh, and he's now confident that he's not going to come across any bear traps indoors or outdoors. What I love about the Gospels is that I get to hear the living words of Jesus, that he, how he teaches about God's love and how he calls us to live in right relationship with God and with each other. But not everyone who heard the words of Jesus were convinced that he actually was who he said he was. The Jewish leaders begin by asking him to speak plainly. In verse 24, it says, The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. There's a hostility here as they gather around him. They want him to confirm or deny that he is the Messiah. But they don't actually want the answer. They've already made up their minds. He doesn't look or sound like the Messiah that they've been expecting. He's not a warrior. He doesn't have some sort of army. He's definitely not saying or doing anything that will relieve them of the Roman oppression. So they want him to either back down and deny that he is the Messiah or to say something serious enough so that they can be justified in wanting to get rid of him, which for them is essentially finding a way to have him killed. Jesus doesn't disappoint them. He gives the clearest statement he possibly can about who he is. Firstly, he refers to God as his father. He does this several times. The implication here is that he is God's son, and the Jewish leaders hear it as Jesus intends them to. Jesus is claiming a divine relationship that no human has a right to claim. Now, this in itself would be enough to infuriate them. They refer to him as a mere man, they know that he can feel hunger, thirst, and pain just as much as they can. And this is not how they understand God. If God has a son, surely this son would be incapable of being subject to human weaknesses and needs. But then Jesus gives them even more to be angry about when he says, I and the Father are one. They're so angry about this that they pick up stones to kill him there and then. For them, this is the most blasphemous claim that Jesus can make. He is claiming that he is God, and the penalty for blasphemy is death. Jesus has shown over and over again that he is a good teacher, that he knows scripture, that he can do miracles. But now he is saying in no uncertain terms that he is one with God. He is God. Now, he shows this oneness in verses 28 and 29. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Then he says, no one can snatch them out of my father's hands. And later he says, the father is in me and I in the father. 
This isn't a man claiming to be anointed by God to preach and perform miracles. Jesus is revealing the miracle of incarnation, God in the flesh. The Jewish leaders cannot and will not accept this. They've been taught that God is too holy and too powerful to be visible to the human eye, let alone take the form of a mere man. And yet, Jesus says, here I am, God in human form, here with you. The Jewish leaders had years of learning that contradicted what was right in front of them. It was a huge theological mountain for them to get over. At some point, many of us have had to overcome a hurdle to start our journey of faith. We had a reason why we didn't believe, and we couldn't just overcome that in an instant. We've had to turn away from our old understanding of the world and embrace a new understanding. When we finally came to faith, it was all the more remarkable that we'd been able to overcome the things that were holding us back. Maybe today you are at the beginning of your own journey. You want to know more about Jesus and about God, but there are questions and doubts that are holding you back. You're facing your own stumbling block, maybe even a mountain, that is holding you back from understanding who he says he is. Now, I believe we're starting an Alpha course in January. Is that right, Jan? Yeah. And Alpha is a great place to start, to have the opportunity to ask those questions and start to get some answers. So yes, the Jewish leaders were at a theological disadvantage with years of learning that left them unable to see what was right in front of them. But there were plenty of people who had received the same teaching and were capable of understanding who Jesus said he was. Verse 40 says, Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, Though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. At this point, for anyone who is new to the Bible, the name John in these verses doesn't refer to the writer of the gospel, who I talked about at the beginning, but is uh, referring to John the Baptist, who had um, spent a long time preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist only used his words to tell people about Jesus. He didn't perform any miracles. So what did he say about Jesus? Well, in chapter 1... John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God, the forgiver of the sins of the world, the God revealer, the one upon whom the Spirit rested, and most importantly of all, he does refer to him as the Son of God. These people have heard what John has said, and now that they've met Jesus, they have chosen to believe. They understand that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God. Now, we don't know whether they believe because of what Jesus says to them while he's there or because he was performing miracles while he was there, but they understand and they believe. Which brings us to our second point today. John is helping us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God by looking at what he did. Actions speak louder than words. Jesus wants them to grasp that if they cannot understand his words, they should believe who he is 
he is who he says he is by looking at what he has done. He says in verse 25, the works I do in my father's name testify about me. Um, I did an A-level in drama and I went to see a play called Beggar's Belief. So it was a very long time ago. I even tried looking it up to see if there was a picture, but I'm not even sure people were posting pictures it was that long ago. Um, It was a collaboration between a British theatre company and a Ukrainian puppet theatre company. It had this very versatile set that um, looked like a giant puppet theatre. The actors were wearing masks. But the reason I think it stayed in my mind is because the entire dialogue was delivered in an invented language. It was, so for me, it kind of sounded like it could be Ukrainian, but for Ukrainian nor English-speaking audiences could actually understand what was being uttered. And there was a lot of dialogue. It wasn't like it was mostly action with a little bit. It was mostly, you know, there was a lot of things being said. But we understood what everything was. We understood every word that they said because their actions and their reactions to each other told us everything that we needed to know. The actions spoke louder than the words. Jesus points them to the works that he has done, the miracles he has performed. When they pick up stones to stone him, Jesus says that he has shown them many good works. The message translation says, I have made a present to you from the Father of a great many good actions. I really liked this translation when I saw it. It reminds us that miracles are gifts. The miracles that Jesus performed were gifts to those who received them. Gifts of mercy, gifts of acceptance, and gifts of healing. But the Jewish leaders are accepting the gift, and they're rejecting the gift tag. In fact, they're accepting of the gift, but they want to kill Jesus for the gift tag. In verse 33, we're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Many, many people believed what Jesus said because they witnessed or received the gift of his miracles. And Jesus is clear that he knows his words aren't enough for everyone, but for some, belief can only come because of what he has done. He says, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them... Even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. This was a culture in which the performing of miracles was essential to prove that the one who was doing them had authority to do them from God. Jesus says that if they can't believe in the ideas, then they should believe in the tangible, the things they can see. There's no way that the works he has done are possible unless God is at work. His works might be shocking, they might be unbelievable, but there is no other explanation. Jesus calls them to believe that he is the son of God by looking at what he has done. But it's not enough for their stubborn hearts. His words aren't enough for them and his works cannot open his unseeing eye, their unseeing eyes. I actually find some relief in this. Even some of those who heard Jesus speak, who listened to his teachings, who saw his miracles or tested the authenticity of his miracles, failed to believe. It's okay for us to ask questions. 
It's okay for us to struggle to believe what we hear and see. It's okay for us to offer up our shaky faith in times of struggle and ask God to reveal himself to us that we might believe for the first time or for the hundredth time that he is with us. Again, Alpha is a fantastic place to come and ask those questions. God wants us to keep asking, to investigate, to explore, to decide for ourselves what we believe. Because when we truly believe, we can receive the gift God intended for us from the very beginning. And so we see how John invites us to receive the gift of eternal life and know that the gift is ours no matter what. Do you remember when I said just now that the Jewish leaders were accepting of the gift, which were the works of Jesus, but were rejecting the gift tag, Jesus' words? Well, here is the most well-known of all the gift tags. It was attached to the gift that was given to the world in a stable in Bethlehem. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. We don't have to do anything except believe. It doesn't say that whoever believes in him and does good works and is always kind and never angers and gives generously and sacrifices their own comforts for others will have eternal life. Thank goodness. Those things and more will hopefully come as we strive to be more like Jesus. But the first and only thing we need to do to receive the gift of eternal life is to believe sounds easy. But I know from my own experience that my belief can be incredibly shaky. I've had seasons where I've been living in a darkness caused by depression and anxiety, and during those seasons, my faith has been really affected. I feel a complete absence of hope. I can't see the point in opening up the Bible or singing worship songs or praying. And I also struggle to believe God. It's a really horrible place to be in. And I'm grateful it's been a couple of years since I last walked that path. I'm hopeful I might not walk that path again. But coming out of that place is painful and scary. I almost have to relearn the truths that I knew before. Will God accept me back after I've rejected him? Will he accept my prayers and my worship? Does the promise of eternal life still stand for me, or do I need to prove my worth and my faith? But in our passage today, Jesus says this, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, I will give them eternal life. He says, I give them eternal life. That promise, that gift, is immediate. And once given, it will not be taken back. God won't ask for the gift to be returned because we've proved unworthy or our faith isn't strong enough. Nothing we can do can take that gift away from us. Nothing and no one can snatch us out of Jesus' hand. Nothing and no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. Whether we fall short or we're currently in a season where we feel broken, 
whether we feel guilt for past sin or we're currently struggling with sin, God doesn't turn away from us. He will never let us go. What a wonderful assurance. There is nothing that can take away from us the salvation and blessings that God has given us through Jesus Christ. It says in Romans 8, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because this is what is at the heart of what we're talking about today. The gift of eternal life is given to us out of love. The love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as we approach Christmas, we can take time to remember and be thankful for that gift of love the gift of God's only son, gifted to the world as a baby. We look towards the gift of love that was displayed on a cross, taking our sins on himself that we could know just how high and how wide and how deep is the Father's love for us. We look towards the gift of love expressed in the promise of eternal life, enjoying relationship with God now and forever. So wherever we find ourselves on our journey of faith today, we can take a moment to understand, believe, and receive. Understand that Jesus is the Son of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Understand that it's okay to have questions and doubts, but this is something worth exploring, that the words of Jesus and the words of the Bible contain truths and answers. Believe the works, the greatest work of all, the cross and the resurrection, prove God's love for us in its entirety. Believe that Jesus came to show us love, to bring us freedom from everything that prevents us from accepting and experiencing that love. Believe that God is intimately concerned with your life, your joys and your struggles. Believe that he knows and understands you completely. Believe and trust that you can come before God through his son, Jesus Christ, and be completely accepted just as you are. And receive. Receive his love. Receive his compassion and his mercy. Receive eternal life, secure in the knowledge that you will never have it taken away from you and you will never be taken away from God. If we wander away, we will be brought back. If we run away, we will be welcomed back with open arms. If we fall short, we will be raised up. If we doubt or question, we will be answered. If we offer up our struggles and our brokenness, we will be strengthened and made whole. We don't have to cling on to God with all our strength, asking again and again for help and mercy. He's the one holding on to us. Nothing and no one can take us away from the loving hands of the Father. Nothing and no one can take away from us the gift of eternal life with him. I'm just going to pray as the band come back up. Oh, Father, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for your word, which speaks to us so clearly of your love and the way that you wanted us with you 
and the, uh, the things you did to do that, the way you sent Jesus to us. Thank you for the works that you did then and the works that you do now. Help us to see you at work in our lives, in the very, very small things and in the big things, God, and help us to point others to you. And Father, if today we are here and we are struggling, if we're not just quite sure where we're at, or maybe we're just not quite sure that we're measuring up to all that we believe that you're asking of us, would you help us to remember that you just love us as we are? that you didn't need us to reach some sort of perfection before you sent Jesus, that you sent Jesus to this broken world and that in our brokenness, you walk with us, you are with us and that you have got us. Help us, God, to not cling on with every ounce of our being, but to know that you hold us and you will never let us go. Amen. Mm -hmm.